Hello and welcome to the PSHE Association podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with two of our subject specialists, Nick Boddington and Anne Bell. Morning. Good morning. morning. Now, firstly, just a word to our members about this new venture uh, and on recent announcements. So this is the first of what we're hoping will become a series of podcasts on various PSHE topics. And I think it's a great format for us. Uh, We're looking forward to some great discussion around best practice in the classroom and recent developments in education policy. And we want our listeners to shape the direction of these podcasts. We want to hear what you think. So if you have any comments or feedback, please send us a message using the website form or comment on the SoundCloud feed directly. We'd be very interested to hear from you. Before we begin, I just wanted uh, to have a quick word on the recent proposed statutory guidance for RSE in health education, because this is huge news for PSHE, isn't it? Absolutely. I think these statutory changes, meaning that uh, relationships education will be statutory at primary, that relationships and sex education will be statutory at secondary, and that health education will be uh, statutory in both phases from September 2020, is really exciting. I think a lot of PSHE leads across the country are really positive about the opportunities this brings to raise the subject status and ensure really high quality PSHE training as a priority to enable that to happen. Yeah, I think when people first look at the guidance, um, they may see it uh, not covering the full range of topics and issues and skills that we'd expect to see in a comprehensive PSHE programme. I think it's really important that people don't feel the need to limit what they're currently teaching. I think the best way to think about this is that while the totality of PSHE education isn't statutory, it's a subject that meets the needs of young people and large components of PSHE will now be statutory. So the statutory guidance, I think... um, helps to further underpin PSHE, but I think it's important that schools recognise that they can still teach beyond the statutory guidance if they feel that meets the needs of their young people. That's a really great insight from both of you. Uh, And I'm excited to be discussing uh, the topic for today's podcast, which is working with external visitors or contributors in the classroom. Now, we've recently released a guidance document to members on this topic, uh, which Anne authored, So it's great to have a chance to discuss this in more detail. And firstly, I wanted to outline what the issue is with having external visitors into the classroom for one-off sessions. Now, framing this correctly is key, really, because we don't want to discredit all forms of external visit. That's absolutely right. I mean, when used well, visitors really add a lot of interest and novelty to a session, which can often be a really great hook into a new scheme of work or into a a planned progressive programme. Um, they often have a lot of extra resourcing that um, a PSHE classroom teacher might not have, so access to materials or to films or to models, etc. And that's really helpful. I think also they have so much expertise, which is really great to get into the classroom. But I think it's really important that we still consider that the real expert in the classroom is the person who is trained in leading that learning. Um, and that is, I think, a key message from us, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think we need to think about visitors to the classroom in the way that we would think of any other teaching resource. Um, you could think of them as, as a sort of human DVD. Um, it, there's, a, there's a difference between a visiting speaker who enriches learning in the classroom 
or who, who enriches a planned PSHE programme and visitor to the classroom who is a substitute for good PSHE education. And I think we just need to be very careful about that. Mm -hmm. I think the important thing is that it's always the teacher that's responsible for managing the learning. It's the teacher that sets the learning objectives and the learning outcome. It's the teacher that monitors the actions of an external visitor to ensure that their visit is helping to achieve those defined learning objectives and learning outcomes. I think, can I just come back for a second to the new guidance? Because I think there's one other issue. If we look at the new guidance, people will notice that the emphasis is being placed very much on knowledge. And I think that there's a risk there. I think we have to have a more sophisticated model of PSHE that recognises that young people need to develop skills, strategies, language. Of course they need knowledge. Um, but they also need to be able to apply that knowledge in social situations. And I think there's one, there's a danger that I see on the horizon, which is that external visitors are really good at providing that essential knowledge. But that essential knowledge alone, um, unless it's embedded within the development of skills, strategies, language, all of those competencies, I don't think that is high quality PSH education. Sure, and that's the golden rule, isn't it? An embedded curriculum. It's something that we refer to a lot in our resources. So I think that's a really key point to unflesh here. Um, so Anne, in this document, you've outlined some key strategies for maximising learning from external visits by embedding them in the wider PSHE curriculum. So that was a good segue there. Uh, what are the dangers of not embedding this learning? Say, for instance, if you had a speaker come in for a one-off drop-down day on drugs, I think one of the key dangers is, as Nick's mentioned, you solely focus on knowledge. Young people need a lot of practice in figuring out what the right thing to say or do in a situation might be. They need some support in developing the qualities and the attributes to be able to manage some really quite difficult situations where they're having to make split-second decisions about, about something that actually could be life-changing. So they need some practice that is actually relevant to them and the situations they might find themselves in. So if you have a speaker focusing on something quite extreme, um, it might not feel relevant to the students in your class. Equally, if they are focusing on some very personal, intensive, emotional aspects to, to what's happened to them on their journey, that might be quite difficult for the young people to take on board. So it's really important, I think, that we reflect really carefully on who we have in our classrooms. Yeah, and I think that any learning that's, that's given as a one-off, um, the best one in the world, it usually evaporates, or at best you only remember snippets of what you've heard. Um, it's a little bit like saying, uh, we don't teach science in our school, but we have an amazing trip to the Science Museum. Well, that can be an incredible experience for young people, but that's not a substitute for science education. So what we're arguing for PSHE is no different from what we're arguing for any other subject, that PSHE is a planned developmental programme of learning that develops skills, that develops competence, that develops language, that develops strategies, that helps young people explore and clarify attitudes. 
and that that programme can be massively enriched by the inclusion of outside speakers who can give you different perspectives that can deepen young people's understanding. But I think the critical question is always helping young people to ask themselves, how is this learning relevant to me? How can I see myself using this in my day-to-day -day life? And you can't really do that simply by listening to a speaker. You have to have some form of active, some form of activity that gives you a structure to internalise that learning, to ask that question. What is, so what does this mean to me then? Where might I be with when I need to use this? Who might I be with? What would I be saying? How would I be using this learning? And I think that if learning isn't seen by young people to be immediately relevant to them, it, I think it changes and I think it becomes, it's in danger of becoming entertaining. So if young people are exposed, for example, to very extreme illustrations of a particular issue or topic, they don't engage with it in the sense of why is this important to me, why is this relevant to me. The danger is it becomes almost like a piece of entertainment. Mm, um, it's that stimulus, isn't it? It just takes over, like yeah. seeing red almost and, and honing in on that and rather than the underlying message. Yeah, and I think it's that, that moment where you stop seeing it as being part of your life and your world and you see it as somebody else is out there somewhere. And I think that's where we, we, we kind of lose the audience in terms of learners sure. and, and we, we engage with them in the wrong, on the wrong level. But I think there's one other um, real um, value in bringing outside speakers in that's often um, underrepresented, which is that just their presence in a classroom can help to establish a relationship between the organisation the speaker represents and those young people. So if I ask people to think about, can they remember a visit to the classroom when they were pupils themselves? Often people will do that. But if I then ask, can you remember one thing they said? The answer is no. But if I ask you, what was the visitor like? How did you feel about them? People will often have an emotion so they'll say, yeah, actually, they were really nice. They were really caring. They were really interested in us. I, I can't remember anything they said, but they, I, I, I kind of liked them. They were okay. Sure. And I think that that creates a bridge between those young people and that organisation. Yeah. And that perhaps the knowledge that they bring to the classroom as visitors, of course it's important, but maybe another value is creating that relationship so if a young person feels, hey, I really need some help with this, um, those people from that organisation, I liked him, I liked her, I trust him, I trust him, I could work with them. So maybe it's about not only the cognitive input to the class or to the lesson, but I think there's a huge value in that social connection. Yeah. I think a key theme arising from this discussion that we're having is in kind of being direct, being purposeful um, as an educator, making sure that inviting these speakers has a clear defined purpose behind it. And I think that purpose has to be supported by the wider curriculum, doesn't it? Absolutely. It yeah. does. I, I think there's no harm in, in negotiating those learning objectives with, mm -hmm. with an outside speaker because 
I, I, I don't like the term outside speaker. I, I, I'd rather use the term visitor to the classroom because I think that's that's a wider concept. Yeah, it's um, much better, isn't it? But equally, the, the, it, it's, it's great for an outside speaker to say, actually, here's something you might not have thought of. Um, it, it, I think something that visitors can often bring is an external perspective, mm. which is to say, in my role, for example, as a school nurse, a school nurse might say, look, in my role as a school nurse, these are some of the issues that are emerging with young people that I'm seeing that you may not as a teacher be aware of. So I think it is a, it's not about necessarily rigidly saying, these are my learning objectives and this is where we go. I think it is about having a genuine dialogue. To, but it's about before the contact with the young people to just be clear what everybody's doing, what everybody wants to get out of this particular session. And just as visitors to the classroom can enrich the learning for young people, visitors to the classroom can also enrich a teacher's planning. Mm. And that's great. That's again, School is part of a community. And I think um, good PSHE programmes are acutely aware of the environment within which their children are living and are collecting intelligence from other professionals within that community to help ensure that their PSHE programme is relevant. Yeah. And in your guidance, you mentioned research from Dr. Pookie Knightsmith, who found that a workshop on self-harm has some clear negative outcomes for young people, inspiring them even to try self-harming by attempting to destigmatize it. Now, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that whoever did this talk was trying to do a good thing for the pupils, and this wouldn't have been the outcome they'd have intended. But the consequences were horrific here. Surely the last thing they'd have wanted. Have either of you come across similar stories in your time as practitioner? So it's incredibly important that we think about whether or not we can unintentionally instruct young people in the very behaviours we're looking for them to not develop. This is really clear and obvious when it comes to uh, mental health issues such as self-harm and eating disorders. So a classic example might be that you are looking to use a case study of a young person who has ended up in a pattern of disordered eating. If they start to talk about what they're eating on that um, as part of their illness, then actually that can be quite instructional. If mm. a person is saying, for example, that they were only eating lettuce and tomatoes for a week, then actually that could be a very clear recipe for a young you're person to follow. You're planting a seed, though, aren't you? Exactly, and you're also potentially telling a young person that okay this young person did get into difficulty but they're absolutely fine now they've gone through the journey and they're much you know they are they are in a very different place to where they were to begin with perhaps they for example are slimmer than at the beginning of their journey and if a young person has a lot of body confidence issues that can be incredibly damaging Mm. because they may already be very vulnerable and hearing those messages is simply going to reinforce some of the disordered thinking that they may already have going on for them at that time. Because it's no small thing having an eating disorder. Like you, can't, Indeed. you can't simplify it. Exactly. Down exactly. to those kind of, sure, exactly. anecdotal experiences. Because the issue itself is far more than that one person's experience as well. Indeed. And you've got kind of these flashpoints, which are issues. And 
when you're addressing them through through one person's experience, maybe you're missing out on a different strand of that experience. I think um, knife crime. Knife crime is a good example. Sure. Uh, where there is clearly concern about young people carrying weapons, and I think it's easy to bring in, for example, a member of a family who has lost somebody to or has had somebody who's been badly injured by a knife-related incident. But if you're young people who have no experience of knife crime, have no intention of carrying a knife, know nobody that does carry a knife, it can feel very distant, it can feel very abstract. But I think there's another thing that, that worries me a little bit, is that you can shift young people's perception about the prevalence of an issue. So the message you might inadvertently be giving is knife crime is really prevalent in this area. It must be because people are bringing people into my school and talking about it. So obviously it's far not more making people, that association. Yeah, yeah. I think the danger is young people then think, so obviously far more young people are carrying knives than I think they are, which may be true, but actually I think it may be true in some parts of the country, but in vast amounts of the young country, I think that's actually quite unlikely. Mm. But there might even be a suggestion that if everyone around here is carrying a knife and I'm not, maybe I should. Yeah, feeling left out. I mean, that's a or, or just feeling scared. Yeah. So far from carrying knives is a really bad idea. If you carry a knife, um, it's an awful thing that's going to happen to you. The message may inadvertently be you're living in a really dangerous community mm. where. And if you look around, those young people that you see walking past you could well be carrying a knife. All I'm, all I'm feeling now is frightened. And should I be protecting myself? And I just think we need to think these things through carefully, just in case they don't backfire on us. Definitely... Learning is really complicated. And I think it's, it's dangerous to think that a simplistic message is, is that young people hear a message will take that message on board and then do something with it. Young people will interpret those messages in the light of their own experience. And it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And we need, to, we need to be a little more sophisticated in how we approach issues than, than just simply give them simplistic messages. Let's look at another example. Yeah. Um, the charismatic visiting, uh, visitors of the classroom. Um, Let's imagine for a moment that they are a recovered drug dependent and they provide an input to young people that talk about their lives, the effect that drugs had on their lives, and they do it in a very entertaining and very charismatic way. And young people, the evaluation is that young people say, yeah, this was, this was really good, I really enjoyed it, he was really great or she was really great. So what have the young people really learned? Well, they've learned the, the kind of verbal input from that speaker so that's the cognitive part but what else have they learnt they've learnt that if you become dependent on a substance that you can give up that dependence that's a good message there's nothing wrong with that message but of course it is incredibly difficult to do when you've given that up you can be, be very charismatic 
and you can also be very important and you are important because my teacher has invited me in to speak to a class mm. of young people so the message you kind of get is that recovered drug dependence are charismatic and important yeah now if you've got an audience of young people who have for example low self-esteem what are all of those hidden messages that young people are also picking up yeah and another thing that's occurred to me and what been saying that Nick and I've, I've kind of read into it a bit on other um, best practice on this topic is uh, speakers who are coming into schools as part of their recovery and they're using these uh, these speeches to pupils these presentations as maybe a coping strategy maybe a part of their treatment their rehabilitation and it's it's cathartic for them it's meeting an objective for them but is that you know always in the best interest of the people? Probably not. If you're being honest, and, and you need to be, don't you? I think it's really simple. Come back to the learning objectives and the learning outcomes. Be clear what you want those to be, and then choose the vehicle to achieve those learning objectives and outcomes. So and that should always be the guiding principle. And that's a triad. That's three kind of steps that you can follow. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the children's needs are paramount. Sure. Um, and they, they're defined through the learning objectives and learning outcomes. And if a visiting speaker is the best medium through which to achieve those, fantastic. But don't be seduced by the medium over the objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, in PSHE particularly, that can be very seductive. We've heard about somebody who's really good. They talk to young people very effectively about drugs. The kids have a really good time. They find it really engaging. Yeah, but what were the learning objectives and learning outcomes? Yeah, and that buzz period is so transient, isn't it? The kids get on coming out of those presentations. Yeah, it's 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 so easy to be by the media. Yeah, of course. Some of the most successful visitors I had into my school actually were about the the slightly less tangible topics if you like there were speakers who were about raising aspirations there were speakers about supporting confidence Mm. or about thinking about alternative career pathways so something where an external visitor has a really strong powerful message but in a way that is constructive that allows young people to explore their own interests their own ambitions and that was far better practice, I think, than some of the the, the danger-focused mm. um, visitors, simply for those reasons we've already outlined. We have to really reflect on what is best practice in PSHE teaching. Mm. And all the years that then I've been, been working with organisations like the PSHE Association to, to really unpick what that best practice is, it becomes very clear that young people must be their experience of what is likely to happen within that visiting experience is integral. How are they going to feel as a result of that particular um, visitor, as a result of that assembly, that workshop, whatever it may be? And if we are trying to evoke emotions such as fear, such as shock, such as guilt, Actually, the research tells us very strongly that that will not work Um, and it can actually do a lot more harm than good. Yeah, I just want to stop you there, Anne, because I think this evidence-based approach is really important. And what we're saying here is that using external speakers in this way um, 
is damaging and that's backed by evidence like what what is the evidence on that where does it come from and, and how, how have we found that out i think fear is an interesting one it's counterintuitive common sense says that if i make these young people frightened about an issue they will avoid it because we avoid things that frighten us no we don't we don't work that way the brain's much more complex than that um, it's about the context within which we experience fear. So, for example, I know that a roller coaster is completely safe because it undergoes incredibly rigorous health and safety checks. So, people are quite happy to be terrified on a roller coaster because they experience the terror of the ride within something that they know is a safe context. So, fear changes and it changes into excitement it's really interesting if you imagine people queuing for whatever the latest horror movie is they will pay huge amounts of money to go to the cinema to watch something that is going to scare the living daylights out of course it's, it's entertainment for entertainment it? Yeah. because they know it's in the context of a cinema which is safe now, if you experience that same anxiety walking on your own down a dark alley in the middle of a city, it's a very different experience, but the emotion is the same. Now, a classroom is a safe place. So what we're doing is we're encouraging young people to feel fear of an issue in a safe context, and what happens is it translates into excitement, mm -hmm. and that's the last thing you want. What you're actually linking is excitement to the topic, not fear of the topic. And that's where it all becomes really complicated. There's another issue as well. Um, supposing I do manage to frighten you about your health behaviour, what's really frightened you? What's really frightened you isn't your health behaviour, it was me and my healthy message. Mm, it's like that judgment paradigm, isn't it? Yeah, Having so what happens time. is, the, I've got now two choices. I can change my lifestyle, or I can reject the thing that's making me feel frightened. Oh, that's you and your healthy message. Mm. So if the, you're engaged in a behaviour that's risky, and someone tells you it's really dangerous, you've got a choice. You either stop doing it, or you ignore what you're being told. And if health education was simply a question of giving people knowledge and woo, you'll go out and make the right choice, nobody would smoke, nobody would drink to excess, there'd be no unintended pregnancies, nobody would drive too fast, and so on. <laughs> it, yeah, people don't need to be told case. that speeding exactly. is dangerous. Yeah. They know it is. Um, there are very few people who are saying, yeah, I smoke 30 or 40 cigarettes a day, it's really good for me. Yeah, that, that message, this mm. is, that's not the issue. The issue is, how do we help and support young people change their lifestyle or, or to make lifestyle decisions that would lead them to a place that's a healthier place to be? Um, but fear arousal is really, really risky. Mm. It can really blow up in your face. And yet, common sense tells you that's got to be the way to go. Um, Great to have that though, great to have a, an evidence base, um, say if you're a PSHE lead and you're being pressured by senior staff to get external speakers in and you need kind of good reasons for 
you know, why a particular person or a particular organisation, or maybe if, even if it's just a, a, a speech is going to be done in a particular way, great to have an evidence base to refute that on. Yeah, I, th- I think you know, if we thought so. fear, if we thought fear arousal worked, <laughs> yeah. it would make our lives an awful lot easier. <laughs> but I'm sure there are a lot of PSHE leads listening who have come across those issues mm. before, and they've needed a strong evidence base to refute. Um, to refute this. I do understand it because it is counterintuitive. Yeah, completely. And I think we get a lot of calls as well in the office from uh, PSHE leads who are struggling with the same thing. Maybe their school are running a drop-down program which they can't really change completely. But maybe they can make differences within that context. And that's that's the key thing, isn't it? It's being able to do as much as you can within with the tools that you have. Yeah, if I can time, push that yeah. just a little bit further, I think yeah. even if fear worked, it would always only be part of the picture. That's a bit like saying, there's a tiger in your garden. That's great. Okay, I'm now frightened of the tiger. The question is, how do I get rid of it? <laughs> so if, 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 if even if fear arousal worked, you would still need to embed it into a programme of helping children develop skills and strategies yeah. to manage their Precisely. lives. That's great. Um, so I just want to move the discussion towards kind of active learning strategies now. Uh, and you mentioned this in the guidance, and how can we use these external visits, these contributions to encourage active learning? And what examples of effective practice can you both give? Because I don't want the listeners to think that it's just negative practice out there. So it'd be great to have some oh, examples no, if you've got some. Absolutely. I think we've all come across really good examples where young people are involved in actually um, inviting the visitor in in the first place. They have a real stake in what is happening. They've had some form of input into what the session will look like. Um, I thought it's also really good practice to have an interactive session that is well planned. So to think about whether or not you want a full hour, for example, of a person speaking to young people, which we know has very, very little impact, if any, on young people's behaviour, or do we want something which allows us some level of activities, some question and answering sessions, some modelling, some sharing of, of young people's viewpoints with the speaker so that the speaker can evaluate what the young people are sharing? And something that is that more dynamic um, classroom session can have much greater impact on young people's attitudes and behaviour. I think one of the most interesting pieces of practice I've seen is to turn the whole thing upside down, which was to get young people to undertake an inquiry to then bring the um, the outcome of their inquiry to an external visitor. So rather than the visitor presenting to the young people, the young people presented to the visitor. Wow, that's interesting. And then the visitor then used their experience to comment on the presentations that the young people had been given to celebrate what those young people had discovered that was really powerful and was great and was really helpful but also the speaker was then able to enrich those young people's presentations by adding on those bits that they might not have thought about and, and I really loved that it was, it was so the visitors yeah. there they were bringing their expertise but the learning was really being undertaken by the young people it becomes a real conversation that doesn't it yes I mean, you've got someone who's speaking uh, with the young people who really knows their stuff because I mean a lot of these external speakers had this specialism they've got so much knowledge on what they're talking about and I think another thing to remember is a lot of them are giving up their time for free to do this 
Right. The, the motive in doing it is because they want to help. So Absolutely. what teachers can do to help them achieve that goal, surely you know, is going to be appreciated at their end because they want to be effective. Absolutely. And I, I think that um, it is about... I mean, one of the golden rules of PSHE is don't teach anything until you know where you're, how your young people are making sense of, of the issue that you're going to be teaching about. Um, and I think that that approach of getting young people to present to the speaker or the visitor kind of automatically showed where those young people were coming from in their thinking. Mm -hmm. So it was immediately relevant to those young people because they were bringing their experience to that event rather than uh, probably the worst practice, which is where you get an entire year group of maybe 120 children, all with totally different life experiences. You bring them into a hall and then you they receive a presentation <laughs> oh God, by a yeah, speaker who doesn't those. know them. I mean, we've all sat through those, haven't we? Even in kind of the working world, you're getting presentations where you know, a lot of it won't be relevant to you, but you're having to sit and listen anyway, and how much of it really goes in. Yeah. Um, so I think those that, that they're okay if they are the trigger for a substantial amount of follow-up work, which then embeds that learning. I think any learning that's not revisited just simply evaporates. But yeah. the, the, it lends itself the, to being tokenistic as well, yeah. isn't it? Saying, oh, we, we wanted to uh, improve our young people's awareness of alcohol today, so we invited this person in to speak about you know, the damage of underage drinking, tick the box. And that's not how it works. Yeah, or, 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 or worse, um, <laughs> you bring somebody in to talk to young people about an issue that is of no relevance to them at all, and it suddenly becomes relevant so I just want to talk a bit about school policy now, because I know a lot of people listening might be interested in how this all ties in. Uh, and certainly it's something that would need to be considered when schools decide to have visitors to the classroom. Now, now schools and teachers already have a host of safeguarding protocols that staff practice on a daily basis. How important is it that external contributors are made aware of these? And what impact might it have if speakers present on these sensitive topics without a teacher present? I think we've already mentioned how important it is for teachers to remain in control mm. of, of the learning. I think that external visitors, however well trained, however professional, however expert they may be in a variety of ways, they are not trained in those learners. Mm. The person who knows those learners best in a PSHE context is the classroom teacher. So they're the person best placed to understand students' needs and to, to know how to handle certain situations. For example, we would always recommend that a teacher find out from pastoral leaves, for example, whether or not a young person would be particularly affected by something that's going to be discussed in a session. And so it's really important that, that a teacher does that and also potentially communicates that they might need to change or adapt a workshop as a result of that understanding whilst also being protective of the information because mm. it is obviously a young person that we're talking about here, not simply a person on, on a And on you a don't register. want that young person accidentally singled out, do exactly, you? Exactly, exactly. And if exactly. you're not necessarily trained in teaching, you don't have that background. Exactly. You might just so slip out, be, you might look at them exactly. too much. Sure. It has to be managed really carefully. Definitely. I think there's um, also a, a, just a couple of really fundamental issues. 
at the end of the day, a teacher is in loco parentis. There's, the parents hand the child to the school on the understanding that in the school they will be taught by qualified teachers. Um, I think that there may be, I don't think there are many anymore, but there may be an organisation that encourages the teacher to leave the session so that the children may, open inverted commas, talk more freely. Um, don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's, that is that's very a red dangerous. Light, isn't it? That's very dangerous. Um, it is the teacher who has legal responsibility for those young people. And that's, people that's a legal that issue, isn't it, it really? Is. So um, certainly don't want to find yourself in that situation. But, but again, it, for those teachers who may be less experienced in PSHE, it can appear on the surface to almost be the right thing to do. And the organisation may say, we have very clear child protection issues. With mm. very, no, the, the only... The, the school's policy will always be paramount, be it on sex education, be it on safeguarding. And if a visitor says, I worked in my own policy, that's great, but our school policy will always take precedence over an organisation's policy. Yeah, and it's having the confidence to say that, isn't it? Yeah. And really kind of taking ownership of your class, your pupils, and making sure they have the best possible practice delivered to them. And, and, and so. let's, let's be clear, I mean, the vast majority of organisations have incredible integrity and will fully accept that and will expect to work in that way. Yeah, I mean, um, they want they want to be on the right absolutely. side of the law as well. Absolutely. It's in absolutely. everyone's interests. That's the key thing about safety. And they care about the young people yeah, that they're working with, sure. so they wouldn't want to do anything that would contravene the school's policies, yeah. knowing that those policies are in place to support young people. So... I want to hone in a bit more on the document itself, which is now on our website and available to members. Now, the document already has a checklist of questions that teachers can use to help them research and prepare for these external visits. Which strategies have you both used in the past when choosing external visitors? For me, I was really blessed to have a strong network of local contacts, colleagues who have trialled or worked with different people in the past and who were able to say whether or not they would recommend particular visitors or whether or not their, their practice met best practice principles. Um, I was also really lucky in that I was able to go along to, um, to colleagues' workshops to be able to see them taking place before I chose to invite that, that visitor into my school. And... I found that that was a really good way of ensuring that I felt comfortable and confident um, that the visitors were the right visitors for my students and that they were following those best practice principles mm. in the way they work. Yeah, I agree absolutely. I think a good point of contact is to see if you're, and it's, it's not right across the country, but the chances are that you'll have a local healthy schools team who will be able to help uh, identify good sources of external support for schools. And I'd certainly trust my local healthy schools team to be able to identify mm. those organisations. It's great kind of having those organisations that act as a filter in your best interests as well. Yes. Because the market's huge out there. I mean, I'm in preparation for this, I run a few Google searches, different areas of the UK. I mean, there's so many people doing this uh, and so many people making money off of it as well. So you really do have to be careful who you choose. Well, we say to young people, don't go with strangers. Yeah. So let's be careful we don't invite effectively a stranger sure. into our classroom to work with our young people. Um, recommendation from other schools can be helpful. Yeah. Um, and it's not simply 
a recommendation of were they good, were they not good. I, and, and one thing I'd be very wary of is an evaluation that is simply the young people really enjoyed that. Mm. It doesn't mean learning happened. That just means they enjoyed it. Now, with the best one in the world, um, young people can go to a cinema and have a really good time. That doesn't mean they learned anything. So I think the question is, what was the learning? What, what, were, the, what were your learning objectives? How well did this experience help you to get those learning objectives achieved? Um, just be very wary of that simple, young people found that very interesting, they really enjoyed that. And I think the checklist that we have in this document, you can turn it on your head and, and use it in the evaluation as well. You have a separate space in that for the evaluation. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to look at any evaluation material that any visitors are looking to pass on to you. Um, because there are certain phrases that might start you thinking. For example, if you see this was really hard hitting, you might want to think about whether or not the content is truly matched mm -hmm. with the best principles we've been talking about. That's really useful. So, going right is um, they turn up, they do exactly what you want them to do, the kids get the learning objectives, they leave. And um, that's kind of the easy bit. It's, it's all the bits that could go wrong that teachers don't think about. That, that in a way, that guidance document is saying, hey, look, it, just think these things through carefully because you will end up with a much better experience if you do this. Um, I think it's just really important to end with an understanding that visitors to the classroom can be very beneficial to the learning experience. You just need to be clear in your own mind what that visitor is going to add to your PSHE curriculum um, and whether or not they will be the best way to deliver that learning. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. But thank you both so much uh, for coming in and talking. Uh, the guidance document for working with external visitors or contributors in the classroom is available to download to members only at the moment on our website. I've linked it in the description below, so do have a look. Remember, if you're not a member with us, you can sign up online and gain access to lots of great resources, CBD events, and subject specialist support. See you next week. Bye.